yeah, your sins are forgiven. Because that's what that's my business. That's what I'm here to do. The Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today are your friends and mine, Tracy. Good morning. And Karen. Hello. And Amy. Good morning from Colorado. Colorado, where it's cold and snow. Ray, Karen told me she's getting rain today. That's rain? weird. Yes, because it's, um, well, what is the temperature? Um, it is currently... Oh no, update weather app, that is 4.03 a.m. Well, <laughs> at 4.03 a.m. it was already 37 degrees. Significantly warmer. Yeah. <laughs> and then it is presently 39 degrees. Eh, it hasn't gone up too much. No, still. Rain in January is a bit of an oddity in my mind. But We're at 18. Raise, 18. raise the whole thing a few degrees. Oh yeah, see, you see? Yeah, that makes for some snow. Mm-hmm. There, would be, yeah. I mean, this, there would be a lot of snow out here if it was like the whole thing just ran eight to ten degrees colder. So, yeah, we're at fifteen here in Greeley. Yeah, it's not warm. It is not. It is not warm. Hey, Amy, we haven't talked about your recent adventure here yet. Are <laughs> you talking about Iceland? Yes. Oh yeah, that was fun. Did you know there's a guy at church that's from Iceland? Yeah, what's his name? Uh, Comey or something like that, Comey. right? Yep, I haven't, yep. I haven't introduced myself to him yet. I need to. He's got a very interesting accent. He's a really interesting looking dude. And, yeah. uh, seems he like a nice at, guy. He works and doesn't work at the hospital. Doesn't he work for the hospital in some yeah. kind of laboratory capacity? Yeah, I think that's right. I think he actually oversees the phlebotomy section. Yeah, like safety and training or something like that. Yeah. 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 I've talked to him. They're really nice. They're yeah. really nice. Yeah, they are super nice. His wife just went to Iceland for the first time, and they took their daughter, and she rode the Icelandic horses, and that it sounded like she had a blast. So that was yeah. cool. Yeah, you were telling me before you went that the days there are, what, a matter of hours right now, three, aren't three they? Three and a half hours, yeah. Three well, and I mean, a half hour long that days. That was December 28th, so yeah. Yeah, so it's been it's been a little bit, but. Yeah, right at the right at the new year, but a three and a half hour day. Now, Karen, you probably had a little experience. With oh that yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just last just year. touch. Only sixteen years worth. That is just I don't know the, that just the thought of that is so bizarre to me. Of, well, so the thing I noticed because oh I'm sorry, Karen, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that the thing I noticed was that in the summer, you know, the the sun would hardly go down, and because of the angle it was to the horizon there would be no sunset colors. So in the summer, it would be light, 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 bright sunshine, bright sunshine, bright sunshine. And then even when the sun did dip below the horizon, there were zero sunset colors. It was a fairly direct approach to the horizon, dip below it, and then come right back up. So you went you went from like a blue sky to a gray sky and then back to blue. That was it. And mm-hmm. then in the winter, it was the opposite. The angle was low mm-hmm. and narrow. And so there were like these hours and hours and hours and hours of gorgeous sunrise colors and then gorgeous sunset colors and a very brief period where the sun was above the basically the southern horizon staring at you much too low for your sun visor in your car to block it. (laughs) Right, right. 
That, yeah, so that, that was kind of the way yeah. I experienced that. Well, and that's the thing. It was very, very low on the horizon, even at the peak of the day. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't, and, and it was a very, very long sunrise. It did, I mean, it seemed like sunrise is two hours long yeah. and then it's at the peak and then, you know, it dwindles down. But yeah, we, we hiked, like we found some hiking trails and stuff and we went and walked on the, you know, they have black sand beaches cause it's all volcanic. Mm. And so we were walking on the black sand beaches, went out to a, a lighthouse, very beautiful. Um, but it snowed every day and we had gone specifically to watch the Northern lights and it snowed every day and it was overcast and very, very cold. Uh, That's a bummer. Yeah. It was between minus four and like 14 the whole time we were there. I don't think it ever got above 14 degrees. Oh. Um, so yeah. So we did other things like we, uh, we went to galleries, um, you know, we did museums, that kind of thing a little bit. And yeah. It was still really nice just to be on vacation and then, the condo that we rented was very peaceful and it was, yeah, so it was fine. It was just very, very peaceful. <laughs> yeah. Except for and, New Year's Eve, right? What I heard. Except for New Year's Eve. And the Icelandic <laughs> people are uh, very celebratory. Like they, well, okay. You know how in Loveland we will have the grand finale on the 4th of July mm. and it will last for half an hour or something like that's the grand finale it was the grand finale there on new year's eve for six hours six solid (laughs) hours it was fantastic and then it it went on for days though like before and after there were fireworks until midnight pretty much every night and these giant bonfires um like you'd go out into the city parks at midnight and there'd be these giant bonfires and uh they said yeah we just burn everything from last you know like they take all their old clothes and burn them they take uh (laughs) all their junk and just burn and hang out together in the, in the city parks. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. But, but they said, well, they said they, they're first responders. They don't pay tax to cover the cost of first responders, hmm. but the first responders are paid for by the sale of fireworks. And oh. so they said the average family spends $2,000 every new year's Eve on fireworks. Oh, oh wow. my goodness. Wow, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, we're talking. Yeah. She then the lady we rented the condo from. She said it's basically from, like it was from Tuesday to Tuesday, continuous, amazing. Mm. And we were in like a subdivision. We weren't even in the main heart of Reykjavik. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, one more thing though. It, there was so much snow that they were bringing big dump trucks down into the city and uh, front end loaders, and they were loading the snow out of the city because they couldn't. You know, you couldn't drive or anything. <laughs> <Can't> just <laughs> scoop it off to the side. <laughs> yeah, so they were scooping it out of the city, like taking it all the way out. Wow. Wow. So, ah. so in Alaska, they do the same thing with the snow removal. There mm-hmm. are there are empty fields scattered throughout the city that I lived in, and they were used for snow dumping. Yes. And they would mm-hmm. still be melting in July. Uh, so, no doubt, right? It would turn into like an iceberg. Yeah. Well, you can't, I mean, you can't leave the snow there. There's too much of it. Also, it's not going to melt for months. So if you're going to plow, if you're going to plow your parking lot, you either have to have like a Sam's Club size parking lot where you actually have a far edge that still Mm -hmm. leaves enough room for your normal car traffic, or you have to scoop it up in front end loaders and take it away. And so these empty, these empty lots throughout the city would fill up. And then by midsummer, usually, usually July, they would be melted. Um, (laughs) 
I do remember there was this there was this thing that would happen and it was almost every year. So in the summer, in July, of course, <clears throat> the town that I lived in, Fairbanks, turns into quite the tourist attraction because the weather's gorgeous and there's an alarming number of RVs creeping down the highway at 15 miles an hour. It's great. <laughs> and um, but the people would be at the tourists would be asking around on Fourth of July, like, hey, where do we go for the fireworks display tonight? And then they would find out that there wasn't one because the sun doesn't go down. <laughs> right. That sounds like a gunfight. Mm-hmm. So right, there's like, are the aliens shooting at each other in the sky? Like what's happening? And so the, there's, there's no fireworks. Like they save fireworks for, at least where I live, they saved fireworks for Halloween oh, yeah. and New Year's. And mm-hmm. at New Year's, it was really cool because you could, you could watch them explode off the snow. At Halloween, mm-hmm. you probably could also because there's snow then, but it just... I just never did because I was always running around with the kids. But anyway, it's those you, you know, you pick your dark time holidays and that that's when you do your fireworks. But I, I remember in particular one ang- just indignant patriotic male tourist. <laughs> just like, well, I, just because they're way up north doesn't mean they're not part of the country. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Somebody needs to remind these Alaskans that they're Americans. And I was like, um, so, and, and you know, I'm I'm walking by, and I'm like, do I intervene in this conversation? Because he's really going for it. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to say something. And so finally, I was like, sir, it doesn't get dark at night. And he goes, well, that doesn't mean. <laughs> you kind of hear and piece that together and, and then i explained i said it's it's not a lack of patriotism or a sense that we're not in the country it's that you can't see them and they're expensive see right, right. oh how unpatriotic we aren't celebrating with our chinese bought right fireworks. right <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> Oh, sometimes, sometimes I question the human race. Well, you uh, just don't think, you know. I mean, it's happened all your life. You just make the assumptions. You don't think oh, yeah. through why it might be different, and like, rah! I'm gonna go do battle over that. Oh, okay, uh, yeah, you get all over that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh gosh, well, that's all. That's all fine and good. <laughs> well, let's let's talk Bible, shall we? Let's, yeah. Let's, let's, Let's let let's talk about Jesus today. We've been talking about Jesus for a while now. We've been in the Gospels oh for a few weeks, and um, I for one have been thoroughly enjoying it and loving it and seeing the life of Jesus unfold. And last week we were talking about um, him uh, healing at either one or two, depending on the depending on the uh, story you were reading, but one or two um, uh, demon possessed men, and and the way that people people were just kind of they were very much amazed at what Jesus, the things that Jesus was able to do. And he was, you know, he's displaying things that the average human being just was not, was not doing, um, you know, an exorcism, I guess you'd call it an exorcism like that. Uh, you know, I, I suppose there was a practice of it at the time, but um, Jesus was just showing an authority that no other person, teacher, rabbi, whatever you want to call him was having. And uh, so he's he's shaken things up in a lot of different ways. And so this week, when we get into Mark chapter two, and of course, I guess I should reiterate here, too, we're we're bouncing all over the Gospels as we make an attempt to be somewhat chronological here. But um, we're going to we're going to be talking largely in Mark chapter two, which will also have us bouncing through Matthew and Luke um, on on, uh, these topics that we talk about here. But Jesus is starting to draw a crowd. 
And uh, we find that Jesus has returned to Capernaum, and uh, the text tells us that he won. My my new King James says he was in the house. Uh, I looked at NIV and said that he was home, but said probably what it was talking about. This is probably Peter's house that we're talking about, because uh, we don't have any record that Jesus actually had a house of his own. Uh, he probably was staying with pe- other people. And in this case, it seems like maybe it was Peter, which I hadn't really considered before whose house this story takes place in. But I suppose there's some relevance here because of what happens in the house. People find that Jesus are, is in this house, whoever it is, and they just start flocking and filling the house. And Jesus starts to talk to, to them. And there's so many people that there's... I guess you could say standing room only, and nobody can get to him. Uh, there's They can't even get through the door at this point. Well, some guys are bringing their friends in, and he's a, he has been paralyzed for, I don't know, I guess it doesn't really say how long. Um, and actually, you know what? Let me back up here. Because I'm always curious to know what it is that makes certain speakers so popular. Now, of course, I mean, here, of course, we're talking about Jesus. I mean, how how would Jesus not be a popular speaker? But, you know, what is it that about someone who, I mean, two people can be speaking on the same topic and one can fill a stadium and one couldn't fill a bathroom, you know? Uh, what do you think it is that draws people like that to hear someone speak on any given topic. You know, I'm thinking, I remember once upon a time I went to a Joel Osteen thing. I'm not, I'm not a huge fan. That doesn't matter. But um, I'm trying to remember what arena we were in. If it was the old McNichols arena or if it was uh, what was at the time called the Pepsi Center. Now I guess they call it Ball Arena. But filled the place. I mean, absolutely filled the place. And it was kind of astounding to be in a in a place that big with that many like, you know, fellow believers, Christians, people who were there to listen to a message from a guy, you know, what, what is it that makes that so appealing from some people versus others? And I think it, I think it could just be in multiple, multiple things, you know, can, can a person build a bridge with their audience? You know, what are the, commonalities that they have are they eloquent when they speak are they down to earth um you know and approachable you know that kind of thing and and two i i agree with you we went to houston and we went to joel steen's church there and it was it was packed it was mm-hmm. like literally i think um i'm trying to think how much that his because it's an old sporting arena it used to be the houston rockets uh arena there and i think i want to say it holds like seventeen thousand. it was full and then you look at the message and it's it's simple like he says it's not hugely uh there's not a lot of theology to it there's no um uh it's not deep in that it's just simplistic and i think that's what draws people to it Mm -hmm. you know where i've been to a smaller church you know maybe less than a hundred people and it's heavily, heavily, you know, um, rooted in the Bible and, and the theology of it and, 
and I didn't, you know what I mean? It, it didn't feel yeah. the same. Yeah. You know, the message was this, you know, yeah. both were good, but it's just all in presentation, I think. Yeah. Well, you know, we'll probably talk a little bit more about that if we get into into John today, but maybe you got onto something there, though. Maybe it is just the simplicity of the message itself, because, you know, I mean, I'm thinking back. We're all old enough. We probably all watched a Billy Graham thing on TV at some point or other, and I don't remember specifics, but I just remember a very simple message of salvation and redemption, and he could fill stadiums, too, you know, so I don't know. What do you say, Amy? Well, I think we have some clue in the fact that, you know, it says that people flock to him because he spoke with authority and not as the Pharisees. And mm-hmm. so there was a sense in which <clears throat> his message was clear and clearly from God. And the people were hungry for that because, you know, they, they had these teachers that were full of all these ridiculous layers and layers of law that they would add on to the people that were not um, God's law. They were human laws, you know, trying to to oversee that. And then just real quickly, I wanted to add, you know, there's a story where Charles Spurgeon talked about the fact that he, as a young man, was struggling with the gospel and he was not able to fully comprehend what it meant. Mm. And one night he he went to a church or one one Sunday morning, I guess he went to a church and and he had to fight his way through a snowstorm. And so there's hardly anybody there. There's like six people in the church and this old farmer spoke and the farmer didn't speak well. Um, He wasn't super articulate, but he knew the Lord. And he said that the man spelled out the gospel so beautifully that in that moment, Charles Spurgeon was converted. And then of Mm. course we know that Charles Spurgeon filled stadiums. Um, And so I think it's the, the real gospel, like there's something inside of us that recognizes it and that people are, are drawn to plain truth. If you were able to track people's spirituality on a chart so that it was visual, visible to everyone, I yep. think you would see a line that goes all over the place and maybe even in phases of life. So I think that there are phases of life, phases of society even, where we crave um, pap. <laughs> That's not flattering, but yeah. we, we crave basically baby formula. <laughs> mm. Um, Paul calls it the milk of the gospel, you know, the milk right, of the right. gospel where Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Right. And, yeah. and there's a time and a place for that where for whatever reason, it can be a sincere reason or a completely shallow washed out reason that's what we want to receive and we will seek out whoever gives us that and then there's other times where either as a societal movement or as an individual we'll crave more we'll be looking for depth we'll be looking around going no this doesn't make sense like the answers the answers that i'm hearing from the pulpit aren't answering the questions my questions are different right and i think that can actually go in phases of individual spirituality. And if you could chart it out, you could see it. And I think that also goes in phases of society. Like the Bible says flat out that at the end of time, people refuse to hear sound doctrine. They don't want it. They won't want it. They'll want to hear what they want to hear, period. And we already went through the book of Isaiah. We already know that there were phases of history where even God's chosen people, the Israelites, were that way. You know, they preferred, they preferred to have, to hear what they wanted to hear. So, you know, 
for whatever reasons, be they good or bad, I think when you see people filling stadiums or reaching hearts or commanding large crowds just with their rough ability to speak, it's it's something, is, there's a connection. And when people can identify and when people feel like you're a trustworthy source of authority, they will listen mm-hmm. and they will line up to do it. Yeah, it would seem that Jesus was able to speak to people in a way that it just, I guess it just reached their heart and he didn't pound them with rules. He didn't pound them with regulations, but at the same time, he didn't sugarcoat. I mean, he definitely was (laughs) preaching, repent, you know, change your ways, but not don't take more than X number of steps on Sabbath, you know, that kind of, you know what I mean? I'm wondering too, if it wasn't just that, that kind of glow of just self-righteousness that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had that couldn't, mm-hmm. that people didn't want to to relate to or couldn't relate to. But think about where they were at as a society. And this is what I was getting at before. Like they've got the Pharisees in charge. They've had the Pharisees in charge, you know, by Jove, they don't have to think or feel. They just have to do. They are God's chosen people. And they're waiting for the promise to Abraham to play out. Right. And there's, hundreds of laws to tell them exactly how to act and then jesus shows up and he preaches the heart of the the heart of the gospel he is the heart of the gospel but he preaches it and he puts it into words and basically he's saying that's nice does it make a difference are you different because of this right and if you aren't where's your heart you know Mm -hmm. so that's it's a different cry and clearly people we're not, you know, first of all, wanted it. And second of all, weren't getting it at their at their normal source of preaching, which was the, the Pharisees. Yeah. You know, I can give a, a little a little leeway to the Pharisees with because they, you know, they they either were or felt charged with maintaining that law, knowing that their ancestors had been so bad at keeping the law that it caused them to go into exile you know at some at one point the entire kingdom of israel even after the split north and south it was all it had all ceased to exist for a while you know they they managed to keep hold of their their culture through um through that exile but now they're so desperate to not have that happen to them again that they have <laughs> I guess they've gone just a little too far now in in putting so much emphasis on those laws and rules, thinking that that was what was going to keep them from, I suppose, disappearing again. Uh, But in the meantime, they had forgotten about the personal relationship that God was wanting to have with them. Well, that's all I was about to say, too, Matt, was just that I think that it was a failure of relationship because, you know, even throughout the Old Testament, we saw that there were individuals who had a healthy, active relationship, a faith relationship with, with the Lord, and they were <clears throat> righteous in his eyes. And and here comes Jesus, and he's saying, you know, he's speaking with authority. The Lord loves you. God so loved the world. He came to save it, you know, et cetera. And so he is speaking to them from the father's heart, like a hundred percent, he is speaking to them from the father's heart. And what they see is a man who heals them and who loves them. And that draws them, that draws them not. Okay. Have you kept law number 1745 section a, (laughs) and so that's where they were like, Oh, this is the real deal. 
And he gets to that when he's scolding. Jesus gets to that when he's scolding the Pharisees. Like he says to them, I'm sure we'll come across it here at some point. Not not today, but I think he says to them, you know, you, you tithe, you tithe the herbs of your garden, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. You know, mercy and justice and faithfulness. You should have done your tithe and also done the other things. Right. Like there's mm-hmm. no like you've you've chosen one you've chosen the visible aspect of religion over the the invisible but it, the roots part of it and that's you shouldn't have done that mm-hmm. you know it's it's all of the things you're supposed to be changed from the heart does your behavior change yeah your behavior changes yes you tithe yes you do this yes you do that but you do it because your heart has changed so you you guys are missing the heart part you've forgotten it and you're stuck on the actions well I. You know, back into the story, um, I love the verse three, you know, it says, and they came to him bringing one sick of palsy and they, he was born on a litter by four guys. And, mm-hmm. and I, those guys, I, I can't wait to meet them. I cannot mm-hmm. wait to meet them. Like they have the heart of the gospel completely. <laughs> like they're like, Jesus is over here and we can't we'll bring our friend through. to him. We're coming through the roof. <laughs> like They're yeah. so cool. Like they're the friends you really, really want. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. The friends you want that are going to tear up your roof? Well, they didn't. They didn't tear up the paralyzed guy's roof. They tore up. If this is Peter's house, they tore up Peter's roof. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm talking about the perspective of Peter. I don't know. Yeah. Guys, what about my roof? Yeah. No, and I Peter, didn't read anywhere where they said and they stayed guys. afterwards and repaired it and everything was good. Right. I'm sure that's in the story somewhere. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But you know, that does speak it speaks heavily to the to faith though. And it it makes me wonder how how far am I going? How far am I willing to go? What am I willing to do? Uh, as a result of my faith, am I going to go, you know, we don't know if these guys knew Peter, I'm going to go ahead and assume it's Peter's house. Um, am I willing to go rip through a stranger's roof to get a friend <laughs> down into the guy speaking there in the hopes that he can heal, heal oh, him? My goodness. You know, uh, I don't, I don't know. Am I, you know, I you mean, know, that is extreme. That is extreme faith right there to do something like that. It and is. I think that's love one for another, though, too, because, you know, it doesn't say that, oh, somebody was mad that their roof got tore up. It's like, we're around Jesus. This is, I have the faith that a miracle is going to happen, you know, the hope, and I'm going to do it. And people around me are rejoicing, and it's a good time. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's where, that's what I get from the story. Like, I, I bet you they did fix the roof. These are good guys. So they wouldn't have walked away. Like, I think they would have stayed and fixed the roof. <laughs> well, and the know, roofs were a little different. And, and that being said, too, in the roof didn't even matter because they were with Jesus mm-hmm. and they were with people that they loved all around them. It, that, to me, that's a good day. That's a great day. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. I can just uh, see myself if I was one of the litter bearers. I could just see myself trying to shoulder my way through. The crowd, because no, I, I wouldn't have, it wouldn't have even entered my head to go up onto somebody's roof and disassemble it in order to lower somebody, you know, <laughs> right. but I, I, uh, you know, put me, put me ground level in a crowd and I can get through it. So there's ways. Yeah. I could shove people around, but <laughs> not, not least because I will absolutely, I will absolutely bank on the fact that I'm female. Excuse me. Excuse me. Oh, sorry. I didn't see you there. Shove. Oh, so, so, so sorry. 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 Let me through. Let me through. Sorry. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm having a I, I I'm I'm sensing a Karen moment wanting to go talk to the manager. Jesus. Oh, look at that. Nothing crickets from Karen. <laughs> but look mm. what it says in verse five. When Jesus saw yes. their faith. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is a fascinating verse to me. Jesus saw their faith. Mm-hmm. And then he says to the guy, he sees their faith. And then he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. Mm-hmm. That See, this is talking again to where we, 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 we've talked a lot of times on the podcast about uh, intercessory prayer. And here we've got like intersex, inter- intercessory <laughs> actions from friends that mm-hmm. result in this man's forgiveness. And... I still don't quite understand how that works. I still don't understand how my prayers for somebody else leads to their forgiveness, how these guys' actions lead to that guy's forgiveness. But that is a fascinating concept to consider uh, and our responsibility in bringing others to Jesus, which is literally what these guys did, literally brought their friend to Jesus. Um, I'm not 100% sure what to make of it. I don't know other than... I guess, trying to remember, it is my job. I am my brother's keeper. Well, and remember Samuel said, I will not sin in forgetting to pray for you. Yeah, like, right. Yeah. Right. And yep. so we that is our task. Like, that's our weapon. That's our weapon in this world. We have this ability to bring others to Christ, and he will will do the work to save them, but he is allowing us to do something, something real through prayer. And I don't understand it either, but I know it's real. Isn't it, isn't it, you, you got to wonder what was the, uh, what was the history of these four men who brought him? Mm-hmm. Like, what was their history with Jesus? You know, mm-hmm. who's, who's, you know, I'm just, I'm so curious. Those are the questions I want to ask in heaven. Like, whose idea was this? Who mm-hmm. met who? And who had heard what? And who saw what to make you guys willing to like climb somebody's house and take it apart? Yeah, because I, you know, this is a situation where I doubt that this is blind faith. You know, we're not just, I I don't think this, it's probably not just that they heard about Jesus. They maybe had seen him speak, heard him speak, maybe had even spoken to him. I don't know, but, but, um, there's more than just, there feels to me like there's more than just, I heard about a guy. Let's go see what we can do with this, you know? Yeah. I was just thinking about the fact that, you know, since Jesus, first words to him is son's son thy sins be forgiven thee you know is that entirely for the man because has he had this history of you know the religious people around him telling him well you know you're paralyzed because of what you did Mm. um you know we we don't know all about you but there must be some secret sins that you know you know because there are people who who lay those kinds of guilt trips on the suffering that's a real thing that happens. And and so Jesus' first words to him are that his sons are that his sins are forgiven. But then I think he's also setting up what comes later in the text. What do you guys think of that? Oh yeah, definitely. Which, which part? I look at it as all playing in together because it's not so much for the 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 person that they're lowering down, but it's the the whole state of the faith of the four to get him there mm-hmm, yeah. because it's, it's no easy task moving, moving a person that's paralyzed. That's a job in itself, let alone getting them up to a roof, you yeah. know, 
and yeah. and doing that and tearing apart a roof and lowering him down, you know. And I think Jesus sees his friends' faith for for their companion also. You know, yeah. so it's it's just the whole environment there that I don't know. To me, when I read when I read this story today, and talking, it it kind of brought it together. And to me, this is almost like how a, a church environment should be. Yes, absolutely. Mm. One of the things that always jumps out at me about this story is the the man is clearly has a physical ailment. Mm-hmm. Like his friends had to bring him; they had to carry him because he cannot carry himself in any fashion right he obviously has a physical ailment they go to all these great lengths to get him in front of jesus and jesus first words are your sins are forgiven you yes Mm. so again that's one of those questions i want to ask the guy who was forgiven what was going through his head like anybody would think that he showed up for physical healing but that's not what jesus said now is he so was he was he answering the most inner need of this young man? Was he stirring the pot with the looking on leaders? You know, both. He clearly used it for both. But I would I would love to know what the guy on the pallet was thinking right then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there definitely was at the time. I and mean, I think there probably still is a a state of mind being that people who find themselves in bad situations must have done something bad to get there. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, a lot of times something bad will happen to somebody and somebody says, what did I do to deserve this? Why is God doing this to me? You know? And so I guess I could probably see that thinking that, you know, this guy maybe is just so down and out. He just thinks that, you know, maybe he's he's concerned that he's done something wrong to to put him into this position. Um, I don't know, um, but I I su- I suppose maybe that w- those would be comforting words if that was if that was his state of mind. But I could see Jesus in this situation. Like I feel like throughout the all of the Gospels, we get this picture of Jesus setting people free from misconceptions as well as from disease and pain and suffering. And so, you know, this young man lives in a world that says, um, don't take this many steps on the Sabbath, do this, do that. And you become self-absorbed. You become obsessed with law keeping and obsessed with trying to do everything right. And you're being told by your religious people, God will only like you if you do those things. God will only help you if you're doing all of these things And the heart of Jesus is to set people free from all of that. And so I, I kind of feel like on the one hand, yes, he's setting up the Pharisees because he knows they're about to, you know, ask him <clears throat> or they're about to question his his authority to forgive sins. But on the other hand, the young man probably is steeped in a culture that says this is all on you, buddy. You you are a complete failure. God doesn't even love you. Beca- and I know that God doesn't love you because you have this physical ailment. Mm. Um so it, I don't know. I'm reading a lot into the text. I understand that, but mm-hmm. I also feel like we have to think through what's happening here. Yeah, and I don't think it's wrong for us to kind of consider what was maybe going through people's heads because we've all had, at some level, we're the guy on the pallet. I think, right? You, you know, um, maybe obviously, you know, none of us have the have the distinction of being unable to walk or or move on our own uh, from our own will yet we've all had those times in our lives when we felt 
you know, maybe we could say we've we've felt uh, I'll use the word crippled, unable to move forward, unable to do, you know, to do, to live, to whatever. And we have found that when we've turned to Christ, we've found a burden lifted. We've found peace in our hearts. We found ourselves enabled to move forward, to step out and to do things that maybe before we hadn't been able to do. And so it's not wrong for us to, I don't think, um, put ourselves into the picture, try to consider what was going through their minds, try to consider what they might have been thinking, how they might have been feeling. Because I think that's what scripture is inviting us to do. But it, but in summary, though, I mean, I, I know we have to move on to the other stories that are in the in the chapters. But I, in summary, I just how cool is it that someone in need who was unable to help himself had friends who were willing to go to such great lengths to haul him to the feet of Jesus. They okay. knew where he needed to be and they did whatever it took to to get him there. And then Jesus took over from there. Yeah, that's almost exactly what I wanted to say. I just feel like we have to be there spiritually. Like we have to be looking at all of our friends and family and thinking, I've got to get this person to Jesus. Like we've got to set aside everything else that motivates us and think, bring them to the feet of Jesus, somehow get them to Jesus because there's so much healing still available uh, in him. Like he will take care of all those things that we worry about and, and our prayers can bring them to him. Yeah, important lesson for us on both sides, on both sides of that, as the paralytic, as the friends. Um, right, those friends are heroes. They're spiritual heroes. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And the, and the fact that Jesus heals the spiritual need before he touches the physical need kind of tells you where the guy on the, the paralyzed guy was at. Because mm-hmm. if, you, if you think about how Jesus handled people in general through the through his years on earth oftentimes he would get their physical needs out of the way so that they weren't sort of hanging over the person's head and then he would address their spiritual needs Mm. or sometimes he would tie the two together in a parable like what we studied about with the woman at the well over in samaria like there's you know there's different ways that he handles it in this case he heals the spiritual need and then addresses the physical need yeah. Right. Interesting. Which, which I think shows the simplicity of of his message is, yeah, I'll forgive your sins first. It's nothing that you're going to have to do. Mm. You know, it's mm, that's it's, great. It's yeah. totally away from what the Pharisees are saying that it's all legalistic. You're going to have to earn your salvation, that kind of thing by the way you act. Jesus is like you lowered him down. Your sins are forgiven. Yep. Wait, mm. that that's it. You know what I mean? It was so different from what they were actually living in the environment there that I think that's, that's what was the the bridge. That was what was one of the main attractions to Jesus is it was like, yeah, your sins are forgiven. Cause that's what, that's my business. That's what I'm here to do. That's what I'm here to do. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think there's a little bit of shock value in doing it in that order. Like it's really easy to look at somebody and say the words, you know, your sins are forgiven you, but it's like he says to the Pharisees so that, you know, that I have the power to forgive sins, I will also heal his body. Young man, get up and walk. Mm-hmm. Right? So to, to everybody around, one is a trite sentence with vast overreach. If it's a human, if this is a human oh. speech. Yeah. And the other one is an unheard of miracle. Like, did you see that? Like, he came in on a pallet and he got up and walked out. It's amazing, right? That's the miracle. Is it really? Or are they all equally within God's power? Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, you know, part of me thinks that maybe Jesus did it in this order too, to stir up the pot there because the, because <laughs> of the scribes Pharisees um, reaction right away is um, thinking that he's going to be, he's blasphemous because like who can forgive sins, but God. And it's so fascinating to me that Jesus doesn't, he doesn't even try to challenge them on their their uh, their accusations of blasphemy. He's just like, oh, really? You don't think that I have the the authority, huh? Okay, well, watch this. You know, I mean, if he were merely human, he would have been able. He might, maybe, he would have countered their their charges of blasphemy. You know, but he didn't even try. He doesn't. He doesn't even try to. Obviously, he doesn't deny that he's God, but he lets them make the accusation. And then just goes with it, just rolls with it. So I think he's, I think he's, uh, I think he's stirring things up a bit here too. You think, you think, you think that's hard. Well, what about this? Well, as we move along in the book, then we meet a tax collector. This tax collector's name is Levi. Now tax collectors at the time, well, (laughs) I think maybe tax collectors at any time are not viewed as being particularly, um, what do you want to say? Uh, welcome. Popular. Popular. <laughs> <laughs> well, at so, least this guy later had the cleverness to open up a company that makes jeans and leave the industry of taxation. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, but um, you know, here we are. We're at the beginning of a new year. If you, you know, haven't as a as a business owner now, I'm learning having to take care of tax stuff all the time and. You know, Colorado has put some new little tax thing that I have to I have to deal with now. And it's a little thing, but it's just like taxes, you know, and I don't I don't think I, I don't care what side of the political spectrum is on when that tax bill Nobody comes. You're probably not you're probably not jumping for joy that uh, that you're having the tax. And then especially in the climate that this is in where the Romans have come in and they're imposing upon you these taxes. Uh, and what benefit are the people getting from it? You know, that's always questionable. It's always questionable if your taxes are going to something that is actually beneficial, you know. And in this case, it probably seems like it's just there to enrich Rome, um, which is, you know, thousands of right. miles. It's a foreign away from power. That. Foreign power. And, you know, once again, the Israelites are finding themselves oppressed by an outside uh, force. And now here's this fellow Israelite who is working for those Romans and collecting those taxes. And so this guy is, he's practically a leper, unclean. And I don't know if they had an official, like an official uncleanness of this guy, if you know what I mean. But um, he certainly would have been shunned. People would definitely would not have liked him or his position or what he was doing. So I was thinking about the fact that, you know, Levi is, uh, or Matthew, is a Jewish guy. And he is someone who, um, he must know the prophecies. He must know a lot about God. And he has taken this job or he has somehow gotten enmeshed in this work. And yet he is someone who immediately follows Jesus. So that's Mm -hmm. really interesting. It is interesting for a lot of reasons, I guess, because it 
at least the thing things I've read about this and or heard about this, and you don't get it from the text, but the idea that the tax collectors could also be a little shady in <laughs> in their collecting, right. and they Putting could it collect, Yeah, I mean, they could collect what they wanted as long as they delivered to to Rome what they were supposed to deliver to Rome. You know, whatever was left over could be theirs, and I don't know if Matthew was or Levi. See. In the text, he's called Levi. Later, he's called Matthew. But I don't know if you know Levi was operating that way or not. Um, but the fact that when Jesus calls him and he immediately follows, that says that says something. You know, had he been, and I suppose he probably had been, but had he been hearing Jesus speak, probably. Had he seen or heard of Jesus' miracles, probably. Uh, and that was appealing to him. Well, just one thought. Um, my Bible has a very brief commentary about each author of the Bible. And at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, it talks about the fact that Matthew, Matthew Levi probably had a knowledge of shorthand and probably was someone who would keep careful records because of his training as a tax collector. And so, you know, God mm. can use anything. And, yeah. and he later records the Gospel of Matthew. So he was probably someone who was keeping a diary or keeping some sort of written record as things went along. And mm -hmm. um, that was very helpful in spreading the Gospel to the world. Yeah, because, I mean, he wasn't the first Gospel, but you know, it's generally believed that Mark was first and then the others expanded upon Mark. Um, but yeah, Matthew would have been having to collect his own data, collect his own thoughts and things on it. So, um, I mean, it stands to reason that he was, he was already very interested in what Jesus was saying before Jesus called him and then for him to uh, immediately follow. Well, later Jesus is having... I guess dinner, I guess we'll call it dinner. He's eating at Levi's house with a bunch of other, as it says, tax collectors and sinners. That's like, <laughs> it's a little funny to me that, you know, that's like the, it seems like the the lowest cut down that somebody could have at, at the time, you know, tax collectors and sinners. But he, he, Jesus is at Levi's house, sitting down, eating with these people. And... Uh, it's so telling this what the scribes and Pharisees do here because one it tells me that they're just watching Jesus they're just watching to see what he's going to do what he's going to do wrong quote unquote wrong and uh, they lose their minds over the idea that Jesus has gone to Levi's house to sit down and have a meal with Levi his associates I don't know I, I guess friends I don't know uh, but certainly associates and interacting with them in, you know, a fairly intimate manner. I mean, you sit down to have a meal with somebody, uh, you're either you're either interacting with them, talking with them, having a conversation, or it's extraordinarily awkward. And I don't <laughs> get the impression that having a meal with Jesus was awkward. So he's getting to know these guys. He's talking about it. He's probably talking to them about their day at work. He's probably talking to them about, uh, you know, stuff at home. Who knows? Who knows? But Here's Jesus talking with these guys, and the scribes and Pharisees are losing their mind over it. So you guys remember the story of Zacchaeus? Mm -hmm. Sure. The Israelite people, like, they had some pretty firm ideas about who you ate with and who you didn't eat with. And clearly this is horrifying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I look at this situation, and the first thing I wonder is, how did Jesus end up with these people? 
did, did he handle it like Zacchaeus, where he invited himself because they would never dare to invite a rabbi? Mm. Or, Interesting. Or was he so approachable that they would ask him? So I read the story of Zacchaeus, and I love Jesus' initiative, where he just says, you, you need to come down from that tree because I'm going to your house with you. Oh, oh, okay, okay, all right, I'm coming down, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, like, how did he end up in these places? I don't know. I love that about him. Yeah, it seems there's, yeah, absolutely. It seems there's just, there was something about Jesus that was very welcoming, very um, easy to But if he took the initiative, right? If he took the initiative in that society, no one would tell him no. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that is a point too. Yeah, because. Hospitable hospitable rules. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. If somebody needed a place, something to eat, something, whatever, you were kind of required to to accommodate them um and so the idea that jesus would even ask to go have a meal with these guys is saying quite a lot also i think the last verse in this very short little story on so uh, the pharisees of course are questioning why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners and of mm. course my snarky brain the first thing i think is does he have any other options here on earth or <laughs> yeah yeah right? and jesus says it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And again, my brain goes to the verses that say there is no, there is none righteous. No, not one. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And I'm like, did he have any other options? <laughs> if he's going to come down to earth and eat with anybody, it's going to be a sinner. <laughs> well, yeah, good point. But also, now that I'm thinking about it, I don't recall any. any Interaction. No, let me rephrase that. I don't recall any instances of these scribes and Pharisees reaching out to Jesus in any way other than to accuse him of something. I, other than Nicodemus, right? I don't uh, see the only person I could think of. Yeah, I don't and see he had any. To do it in the dark. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we don't get any. We don't get any indication of dinner invitations from the Pharisees for Jesus. And you would think that somebody as prominent in in the area as Jesus was attracting so many people would have been like a, a natural thing for the scribes and Pharisees to want to say, Hey, let's, you know, you know, come, come and come and come and talk with us. And we don't, I don't think we get any record of that at all. I'm trying to find it, but there is one. And that's, um, remember right after, uh, Lazarus is raised, Simon, invites okay invites you're right jesus over and then that's when and jesus is so careful even with simon like simon's a jerk and he's trying very hard to <laughs> to be like look at this i have this you know person at my house etc and his heart is not in the right place and so when the woman who washes his feet mm-hmm. uh you know with the perfume uh jesus intervenes for her but in a gentle way, he says to Simon, what do you think? Who loves me more? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, so that's the only one I can think of. Um, yeah, you too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But even in, it, even in that sense, sense that, you know, well, I guess, I don't know. I can't read into Simon's mind there, but it was that, was that to try to gain some, you know, you know, rub off a little popularity from Jesus or was he there doing it to, you know, try to make a point from well, Jesus. I, think he I don't was know. Thanking Jesus because Jesus had healed him from leprosy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he was thanking Jesus, but on the other hand, um, when confronted with a, a dirty sinner, 
yeah. Simon Simon tried to make it like there was a separation between her sins and his mm. sins, mm-hmm. and Jesus wasn't having it. Right. I was going to say the exact same thing as Amy. I was remembering Simon, and that he was wasn't he a a leader in the in mm-hmm. society. So I, th- I thought that 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 was the only one I could think of. So anyway. yeah, no, and you know I'm glad you guys remember that because I had I had not. Uh, yeah, but that um, idea of the physician is uh, is a big one, calling mm-hmm. the sinners to repentance. That's and yeah, the idea of a physician and Jesus, just Jesus being with this eclectic group of people. And if mm-hmm. you want to meet Jesus, that's where you got to do it. If you know, is reaching out to different people from different walks of life, sharing moments with them, getting to know them, and that can be really hard for us. Um, you know, I'm working with a men's group at church and I'm trying to reform it, rebuild it, whatever. And I was talking to one of the men and he's like, you know, I'm trying to, you know, sort of trying to get him involved and interested. And he goes, I just don't think I, I have anything to, in common with those guys. And I'm thinking, dude, that's the point. That's exactly <laughs> the point is we're supposed to be getting to know each other. We're supposed to be learning from each other, becoming friends that we never thought we would ever become friends with. And you find your life richer for it. Rather than mm-hmm. climbing into our shell and, you know, I'm only going to hang out with people who like to do the things I like to do. How do you ever learn anything new? You, mm-hmm. you, you can't. That's you just, cool. And I think a lot of times we end up by ourselves because that person isn't exactly like me, so I'm not going to interact with them. Well, guess what? You end up, you know, in the living room by yourself with nobody to talk to. But so. in the big picture of things, isn't that what the devil wants, though? Oh, absolutely. I think he so. wants us all separated. Yeah. Absolutely. Isolation. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think those, I think that's why we see things happening now that keep us more and more isolated. You know, we have quote unquote social media, but look at how divisive that has gotten for us. Uh, right. Take a look at your kids and, and how much do they interact with each other compared to us? And probably our parents looked at us and thought the same thing, you know, as TV, you know, first I saw was radio and then TV and then computers and social media internet and whatnot these things that were supposed to bring us together have been kind of pushing us apart it makes it easier for us to entertain ourselves by ourselves it makes us easier to um just sit in a corner by ourselves and be entertained but in the meantime we have no interaction with other people and it's a sad state of affairs and it's getting to the point and maybe it always has sort of been where they are the enemy. I am on an island by myself. And uh, that's just, that's, it's not healthy. It's not good. Man, oh man, do we have to figure out how to break that pattern? Mm-hmm. Well, in all of this interaction, maybe not this specific step, specific story, but in this interaction of Jesus with Pharisees, they notice that they, the Pharisees, notice that Jesus' disciples don't spend time fasting. Fasting is something that we, you know, we've probably discussed a little. We've seen some of it through the Old Testament. You could do some studies today on fasting and see how it's good for you physically. Tracy, you probably have some things that you could say about that. Um, How it's... The new craze. What's that? It's the new craze. The new craze. The new craze that's been around for for centuries. Yeah, Yeah. intermittent (laughs) fasting. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's good for you. It's good for you physically. Uh, Someday I might test that theory (laughs) we'll see and it can be good for you spiritually to help you 
you know, focus on on things as a bit of a reminder. I, I'll be honest, I've never really I've never really done it myself. I probably should try sometime. But in this case, the Pharisees are like, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus has an interesting response where he says, friends of the bridegroom don't fast when the bridegroom is with them. And the days are coming when the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. What do you think? What do you think on that? What do you this idea? Well, of course, the bridegroom, we've talked about the idea of Jesus and the church. Jesus as the as the the groom, the church as the bride. But in this case, his disciples as these friends of the bridegroom, not fasting. Because there's a, some way you would almost think that with Jesus on the planet, it would be a time for more uh, reflection on faith and whatnot. And you would almost think that this would be a time for more fasting, except Jesus is saying, no, right now is absolutely not a time for that. What do you think? So that, like what you just said, really makes me think something interesting, which is that, so when we're in the presence of Jesus, when we're with him, there's no need for fasting, but we live in a time uh, when his presence is not as readily available, like, um, or obvious, I should say obvious, of course it's available. Um, And so maybe the purpose of fasting is to try to see what we can't otherwise see, because we're so focused on getting food, uh, preparing food, just all the busyness that surrounds food. And, you know, maybe, maybe that's just it. Like when Jesus is with us, uh, it puts it in, it puts fasting in the context of relationship. When I'm having trouble finding him, maybe that's a time to pull away from all the busyness of life and say, Lord, I can't see you right now. What's going on? And, um, can I have your presence, please? And, you know, I don't know. That's all. Just that little thought. Well, I mean, that that tracks with what Jesus is saying, because like I was saying before, when they accuse Jesus of of blasphemy, at no point does say it does Jesus try to dissuade their thoughts of of him as God. You know, he never it would be ridiculous for him to to deny it, because obviously we know that he is God. But why why would you? be fasting to get closer to God when he is literally sitting there right next to you. You can reach out and touch him. Exactly. Um, um, yeah. So that I, it's a, it is an interesting, it's an interesting concept. Well, and, and he in other places is clearly looking forward to the day when we feast together. You know, mm-hmm. he says, I won't drink of the wine until you come and are with me in my kingdom. And so he is a he is a person of celebration. He is a a person who is hospitable and wants everyone to come, come, come. And and that's the picture we get in the gospels over and over again. Go into the highways and the byways and bring the homeless guy. Like get your, uh, you know, get all these people and bring them to my kingdom because I miss them. I love them. And that's a hundred percent who he is. And so when we see him, he's not fasting. He does fast. There are days when Jesus goes, you know, obviously we already talked about some of them when he is seeking the father. And when he was living in a dark world, sometimes he pulled away from everything, including food. Now, Jesus relates this to something else at the same time. He talks about, how does he, he says, no one sews a new piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment or else a new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. 
And then he says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled. The wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out how the two exactly relate. Fasting is a like we said, fasting is an old custom, but it's not without merit now. But yet Jesus is saying, why would you have these? Or at least and, and correct me if you think I'm speaking uh, wrong here. But it's like Jesus is saying, why would you have these guys doing that old stuff when we got something new happened happening? Well, I think I think you're pretty much right. Just because the reasons to do something change doesn't mean that you stop doing it. But it means that there's a there's a transition. He is the transition. He's the new wine. He right. needs new wineskins. You know, we have to we have to adjust people. The Jewish people of that day had to adjust their thinking in order to accommodate what Jesus brought. That's the new wine. He needed them to be new wineskins. Otherwise, if they tried to stay with their old thinking and still accept him, their old thinking would break. Mm-hmm. They, they don't go together. It's Square not pegs, round hole, yep. you know, whatever analogy you want to draw. The same thing, unshrunk cloth on an old garment. The same thing of following the old patterns of fasting. I think if you... I don't know a whole lot about fasting, but what this passage tells me is that the reasons for doing it under the first covenant of the sacrificial system and the reasons for doing it under this, the new covenant of Jesus was the lamb and has already been here is different. It doesn't mean that fasting went away. It means that the reasons to do it changed. That's mm. kind of my rough understanding of everything that's said here. Okay, I'm on board with that. You know, not... I think it's just along the lines of what she's saying. It, it's a new thing. You have to be able to expi- expand your mind and be willing to expand your mind to accept it. And at that time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not at that point. Mm-hmm. So he's saying, you know what? You're not getting it. It's like, this is a new thing. I'm doing a new thing. And, you know, you have to, you have to allow that flexibility to be able to accept it. And they weren't there. Yeah, the old fasting maybe was intended to be to find Another God. physical outward presentation of of you're trying to do something physically to obtain that salvation to gain the favor. Yeah, and in this yep. case, Jesus, where like, you don't already, need to do that anymore. I'm here. Gotcha. Yep. So I looked it up in Matthew and in Luke, and you're right. They Every time he does the same thing, like it's recorded as he talks about the fasting and then he talks about the wineskins. So that's interesting just in the fact that all three of the synoptic gospels record it the same way. Um, and so it, they must be related topics. But notice verse 20, you know, Jesus says the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And in those days they will fast. And so... I do think fasting does play a role in the spiritual life, just in the sense of deepening our relationship with him, reminding us to pray when we feel hunger, unclouding our minds so that we feel his spiritual presence or so that we're less. I think sometimes after we eat, you know, like you get the food coma. Um, Mm. And (laughs) there is a reality to the fact that when we put aside even our most basic needs to seek him, there is a depth that can come that isn't otherwise available. I don't know if that rings true to anybody else. It does. 
It does. And uh, like I said, someday I need to I need to try it, I suppose. I've talked to people who have practiced fasting and found the benefit in it. But I've just never done it myself. I would want to study it first before doing it because I understand that there's a spiritual component to it. I don't really understand the spiritual component other than that I know people do it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's simply an element of intensity. Like I want the connection to God so bad that I'm going to sit here until I have it. Mm-hmm. Food doesn't even matter. Like I realize that my body is an earthly mechanism that requires fuel. I, I don't even care right now. I don't know if it's that or if it's something else. It's I but I, I want to study on the nutritional first. and. Um, dietary kind of thing there's a there's a couple great books out here i'm not plugging anybody's books but um dr jason fung did his um obesity code and diabetic code those are some good reads if you want to learn about fasting not a spiritual fasting or anything like that but just on the physiological and um nutritional aspect well, and if and if we believe ourselves to be integrated beings, then those all feed into each other, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> no, it you is interesting. It is interesting though how fasting does reach the entire human being, body and spirit, however you want to however you want to play that out. Um and beneficial in both aspects. Um, I think Amy touched on something earlier where she's talking about, you know, when you feel the hunger, it reminds you basically why you're doing it. If you're doing it for spiritual reasons, if you're not, um, you know, then it's a whole different situation. But um, if you're trying to do it because you're wanting to reach out, get closer, whatever, those hunger pains probably, it's, you know, it's like a, 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 a string around your finger, you know, it's just. Oh, yeah, that's the thing that I'm remembering right now. So I also notice in the scripture, all throughout the scripture, when people are fasting uh, for spiritual reasons, they're typically, they are seeking something like there's, and it's not that they're trying to get God to like them or to accept them. It's that they're, they're somehow trying to clear their own mind. That's more what the sense that I get. I don't get the sense of like, you know, the medieval church taught that you needed to mortify your flesh. But I think in in the Jewish tradition, among those who trusted the Lord, fasting was a way of seeking um, his spirit to enlighten them. Like Daniel was like, I don't understand this prophecy. So he fasts, mm. you know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. It's more, it's certainly not to gain the favor of God, but to allow something in us to gain understanding. Mm-hmm. Intentionality. Yes, there there you go. That's very yeah. good. Doing something on on purpose with a purpose, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I suppose it's just an added element that just focuses you on mm-hmm. on on the purpose. So, so it's not bad that the Pharisees are like you know saying these guys you know rec, rec, I don't know they're, they're not recommending fasting, but apparently their their purposes for it maybe were different and. <laughs> Basically, these guys don't need to fast because I'm right here with them. And I'm sure that mm-hmm. raised I'm sure that raised the hackles of the Pharisees even more. Well, on that uh, that note of 
Jesus changing things. We'll talk about this last bit in um, where, where are we at? Mark. Yeah. yeah Mark. We're in Mark. Twenty-three. Yep. This last bit of Mark, where Jesus is shaking things up, and we're going to be talking a lot about Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> That's why we're here. Yeah. <laughs> why are we going to talk about Jesus? Oh, sorry. <laughs> but Jesus shaking things up challenging all the norms challenging the the author the the human authorities on on the what do you want to call it religiosity uh mm -hmm. of things and jesus has taken i'm gonna say he's taken a walk on sabbath afternoon i'm guessing it's sabbath afternoon it doesn't really say but it is definitely the sabbath and so they're they seem to be taking a leisurely walk and or relatively leisurely, but they're walking through some grain fields as they're doing this. Um, you know, if you've ever seen plains of wheat, uh, it's a gorgeous sight, and being around it is just kind of um, or corn, you know, anything, any of those those big crops, you know, something that somebody's built or grown. Um, you know, it's just it's it's just a kind of a beautiful setting. But Jesus is walking through with his disciples and his disciples do the unthinkable thing of plucking grain, plucking the grains, rubbing them in their hands and nibbling on on that grain while they're walking. Scandal. Well, Scandalous. Well, first of all, the walking through the field isn't bad. And actually, the plucking in itself isn't bad because there was actually provision in Jewish law that. You could go into any field at any time and eat what you wanted to, eat what you needed to at the moment, long as you weren't like filling a bag to take home. You could do that. It was fine. And so that's all well and good. But the problem here is they're doing this on the Sabbath. And so, and the Pharisees see this and they're freaking out because that simple that simple act of plucking that grain rubbing it in their hands to quote unquote thresh thresh the grain it's work you are working on the sabbath and the pharisees lose their ever loving minds over it <laughs> why are they doing what is unlawful on the sabbath and jesus's response is is kind of interesting um because he's like do you remember what david did do you remember that time that he went to the temple and he got the showbread and he, he and his buddies were eating that? Yeah, that was that was supposed to be against the rules, too. And what do you make of that? And they don't really have anything to say. Because it was King David and they held him up to such high esteem he could do no wrong. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nobody questions that. They're like, yeah. yeah, of course, they were hungry, you know, and and, and the priest gave him the, the, the stuff to eat. And yeah, no, they weren't supposed to do that. And so then Jesus is challenging this here. Why are you saying that this is so bad? And then his phraseology here is very interesting. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. This is a challenge really of the Pharisees' interpretation of the law in general. This is, I don't think this is Jesus just talking about the Sabbath. And he's not trying to challenge the validity of sabbath here but just what is your emphasis on sabbath and the law so my my impression of this has always been 
well, basic, basically exactly what he says, Sabbath was made for man. So the law, the law was not this un, unmovable set of parameters that existed. And then man was created and man has to be shuffled into these shoots, these 10 shoots of the commandments. And if one toe goes out, well, then you're hosed, right? Mm. I guess I, it's, it's a reminder of the order in which things happened. So man was created, man was flawless and in the correct relationship with God. When sin, sin entered the world through Adam, like as like, and I'm quoting Paul, I think when I say that, as, was it Paul that said that? Is so sin entered the world through one man? Um, so. Then the law was stated out loud to remind man to come back. Because man's natural inclinations were now off. So that's that's kind of my understanding of that. It's like you cannot prioritize the law over the human. Because the law was created for the human. The human is what matters. Excellent. And the relationship yes. with the human is what matters. That's kind of how I understand it. I've seen this passage be used a lot of times for people to say that Jesus was challenging the law and was doing away with the law. Specifically, they point it as a Sabbath, but uh, doing away with Sabbath, but even the law in general. And I would question if you put any other of the Ten Commandments into this scenario, mm -hmm. does it make sense? Would it make sense for Jesus to be coming in and challenging the law against murder or adultery? It it doesn't make sense. Does, does it make sense for him to be challenging laws about blasphemy? And it, it doesn't. But what we're seeing is this. It's not even a relaxation of God's law. It's just a relaxation of the way the Pharisees are viewing it, where they're seeing it as like the be all end all. This is how you have favor with God. So I like Karen's explanation because you know, Jesus, of course, has the perfect perspective on the law. And what he uh, remembers is a human that he knew and who was able to, you know, in in true fashion, you know, this exuberant person, David, um, was not afraid of God. He, he came into the temple and asked for some of the bread. And he was someone who knew God well enough to just say, I'm hungry. Please give me that bread. Mm. And then Jesus also would know, it would remember that the Sabbath originally, you know, being made for man was a time when man was going to sit down with God and celebrate what had just been created. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Like I'm seeing that in these passages and I'm thinking about the fact that Jesus is remembering when humans were uh, together with God. And his whole purpose in coming is to reestablish a time when God will dwell with us. Like he will live with us again. And there's going to be a time when we sit down on the Sabbath, not thinking, oh, I can't do this and I can't do that. But I'm going to play with elephants like mm. on the Sabbath. That's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be like, God made elephants. Check this <laughs> out. <laughs> you know, and, and there's going to be all this celebration of all the good things that he wanted us to have from the beginning. Yeah, totally agree. Just, you know, in this case, they are talking about the Sabbath, not the law as a whole, but you but you can't do away with one. You can't do away or change one part of the law without all of the rest of it being affected. So that, you know, the, the law in some senses is a unit. 
of one thing. But yeah, the Sabbath was was created, you know, man and, and woman then were put in the Garden of Eden and told to work the ground. They're told to work the earth and tend it and be its conservationists, and they were put in charge of it as humans. And and then Sabbath was the break. It was the reminder that they might be working it and they might be a difference, but they were not the creator of it. Here's the creator of it. You know, you're mm-hmm. creating being also. So now let's come and let's sit with God and let's have some have a nice visit and let's enjoy the work that we've done and let's enjoy each other because that's actually what we're for. Mm-hmm. So I see the Sabbath as a relational day to step away from the things that legitimately consume our time and energy, the things that we have to do to live here and to reorient ourselves as a created being at the feet of our creator. That's kind of how I perceive the Sabbath, but that's a huge change from where the Pharisees were at. They were yes. measuring steps and pinning handkerchiefs and, and cooking food before. Oh my goodness. Really? Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. wow. Yeah. Talk about missing the point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have Jesus and his disciples just having this beautiful moment, sharing time together in a beautiful setting and enjoying the creation. And then these guys are like, no, you're doing it wrong. You know, that's uh, <laughs> exactly it's uh it's it's just a it's a it's quite the separation of of attitudes yep. and uh, the way the way that we're supposed to have a relationship with God, which is supposed to be simple. It's supposed to be easy. It's supposed to just happen. And uh, we complicate it all the time. All well, we're on the messed up end. So that's understandable. You know, we're kind sure. of struggling along and trying to figure out what this this divine spouse of ours who we've never actually laid eyes on wants from us and and we judge that from our point of view which is perfectly legitimate because what other point of view do we have but then here comes the bible and the law and it's set there to to clarify what it is that god actually wants and is it difficult at times to disengage from our point of view and how maybe we want things done or how we just want what we want in this moment to connect into that higher place into that higher relationship with a completely different way of thinking of course it's difficult but mm-hmm. that's what it's there for. And that's why the Sabbath was created for man is because we need that. And if and if Isaiah is correct, if we re, if we believe the Bible and we believe Isaiah, then we believe that we're going to be celebrating the Sabbath into eternity with God, because the cycle of creation never ends. Like right. a lot of the laws out there are to guide our behavior. This particular law is about honoring the creative side of God and what he made and that's the reason we exist and we stop to honor that relationship mm-hmm. so that's that's you know this this particular commandment is a little bit different than the others in that respect yeah yeah well and this isn't the last time that we're going to see the Pharisees challenging Jesus on his actions during the Sabbath we'll see more of it to come um, and we'll get a little we'll get a little broader perspective on Jesus's attitudes towards the law in general and the Sabbath. Uh, that's about it for, that's about it for uh, Mark chapter two. Any, any other thoughts, any final thoughts? We have a very slow pace through the new Testament. We are not making nearly as good a time as we did in the old Testament. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we're not. We are not. I but I think it's good stuff where we're able oh. to like expand on it all. And give our, you know, our own personal interjections about it all. 
Yeah. Well, so I mean, I this is. I think this is the pace I want. Yeah, and well, and it's a very rubber meets the road time of the Bible's history too, because we spent a lot of time going through the build up, the build up, the build up, and now here we're at we're like this apex of things, and seeing Jesus put into yeah. into practice what he wanted his people to be doing for four thousand years at that point. We've we've been waiting to G- we've been waiting for Jesus in our podcast, and now he's here. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. exactly. Yeah, and uh, I don't want to I don't want to rush it. <laughs> No, I don't want to rush it either. And in fact, I would say that, I mean, as I look around, like what the state of the world is today, like it changes my perspective on the gospel story as compared to 10 years ago when things didn't seem so ramped up. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, you know, I wonder if, is that just my perspective or is it that the world really has changed so much that this is so, feels so much more important to me now? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know anybody who thinks that the world isn't ramping up. Everyone oh, I know, secular or Christian, thinks that, like, hey, what? why is the world insane? Yeah. Yeah. So, absolutely. Couldn't, probably couldn't be a better time for us to be talking about this stuff. All righty. Well, I think next week we are going to talk about John chapter 5. And there's a lot of good stuff in John chapter 5. Um I don't even know if there's much reason to try to... I mean, we spent almost a half an hour talking about two verses today. So um, <laughs> let's uh, <laughs> let's just say next week we're going to talk about John chapter 5. Some really cool stories in there and some deep thoughts, deep thinking to have. So um, while our friends are reading that and waiting for us, please remember you can reach out to us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. Check us out on Facebook. Please make sure that you subscribe to the podcast and make sure that you share the podcast with your friends. We look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening.